our prayer as we begin to explore these verses together and just get a comfy seat now if you would like. So where we're at now kind of began probably around four or five weeks ago um, when we were preaching and looking together at God and Israel and the formation of the covenant. Lots of interesting events unfolded, but one of the ones that really struck me was the, this command to Israel, don't touch the mountain, for that's where God's presence is. And if you touch that, you will die. You will be put to death. And we might find that a little bit jarring, but the reality is when the unholy encounters the holy, this was to be the outcome. The two do not mix. And as I was writing a sermon on that, uh, one of the daily verses that pops up on my phones, my phones, I only have one phone, um, not that posh, um, but the verse that popped up on my phone was Hebrews 4 verse 16, which says we can go boldly with confidence into the most holy place because of Jesus Christ. We can go boldly with confidence into the most holy place, the throne room of God, because of Jesus Christ. And you can look that up. It actually says that. And when you think that Israel was told, don't touch the mountain. And we're told you can go into the throne room of God with confidence. We wouldn't go into the the, the throne room of the Queen with confidence. But we can go into the throne room of God with confidence because he's our father. Because that's where Jesus is, our Savior. And why is that possible? Is it because God suddenly chilled out about sin and he's not, it's not that big a deal. They've done it for, de- for millennia now. We need to get over it. No. It's because what Jesus has accomplished for each of us has utterly transformed who we are before God. And we are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And that's staggering. That's staggering. That has so vastly changed things. But what really struck me was that call that God was placed on Israel transfers naturally to us as his people, which is that we are a holy people. And holy doesn't mean anything bizarre when you actually begin to explore it. What it means for us, practically speaking, is that we're set apart, distinct for God. So what does that mean? How how do we work that out practically? And as we move into summer, I really felt compelled to have a summer series on this and begin to look at some of the key distinct things that should identify us as Christians and actually makes us distinct when the rubber hits the road in everyday living. And we looked at the first of these last week as we explored that call to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind. And we got to a place where we recognized that actually this wasn't merely about these these areas that are described, but it's about the whole of our being. Everything that we are is to love God. And that, that is the first and the great commandment. It's not a list of do's and don'ts and rights and wrongs. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a heart thing. It's about where our priorities lie. It's about responding to God, not with legalistic obedience, but with a heart that's filled with gratitude and thanks and worship and adoration and love. That's the first thing that God is looking for from us. 
And as we reflect on the gospel and the grace of God, we can be taken to that place. And as I said last week, often when we're in that place where we love God and other things aren't crowding in and blocking it all out, we call it fire. Somebody's on fire for God. Ask that question. Is that something we should only experience every now and then for a day or two or a week or two, depending on the Christian event that we may have been at? Or should it be something that's a wee bit more consistent? Now, we're not always going to be on fire for God. Let's be realistic. There's always going to be peaks and there's going to be valleys. That's part of our Christian faith. And we see it consistently in the life of disciples and in the life of the, or in the testimonies of saints that we look to in the past. But that attitude of love and adoration should be one that's growing and developing in us. And it should be one which, when the rubber hits the road, there is a real distinct difference in where our hearts lie, where our focus is, what our priorities are, because our heart lays somewhere else. It lays in heaven. It lays in the throne room of God. Not in the things of earth, not in our careers, or our families, or our possessions, or any of those things. And I'm not slating those things and not saying they're good. But God's call is that our hearts first belong to him. And it's only when our hearts first belong to him that we can truly appreciate those other things because they were never designed for us to obsessively devote ourselves to them. And when we do that, it tends to crush them. If, for instance, we have, we might have experienced this in our childhood, a relationship where we feel the other person is obsessed in us. Generally, we are trying to seek out our passport to get to safe grounds because it's claustrophobic. We can't cope with it. It's too much. We're designed to do that. But it's to go to God, not to the things around us. So we're distinct in that sense. And then Jesus here gives us the second and great commandment. And both of these commandments pull together all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So the second of them is love your neighbor as you love yourself. Now that might sound all interesting, pithy and easy. But when you think about our culture, living is... People in, I was going to say Scottish people, but I looked around and there's much more than just Scottish people here, so I'm not going to generalise there. But living as people in Scotland, I'll say it that way, because I think everybody here is from Scotland, and if not, you can give me a row at the end, I'm at the door. But living as people in Scotland and the issues that our culture faces, what does it mean to love our neighbour as we love ourselves? How does that make us distinct when you think of some of the, the, the... projections of other groups of people that our media tries to make us perceive others with. So immigrants, for instance, it it gives us a specific category of how we should perceive people such as that. Or I was about to use the phrase dole scroungers, and that says it all about how, how the media programs us to think about people. How do we love our neighbors as we love ourselves. One of the key and most important things that we must do is learn to think biblically and not culturally about what it means to love our neighbour. And that doesn't come naturally. That's not a default thing. That is a reflective thing. That is a prayerful thing. Because what Jesus is saying here is a radical call to something rarely seen. A lifestyle that is so other to even our culture. The one that we live in. So let's have a little look. Let's go. I'm going to first define love because we might think, well, well, what is love? Is love Disney? 
No, it's not. Every Disney film follows the same script, by the way. Um, but it's, that's not love. The, the Bible, knowing that we would maybe try to get around these things, very interestingly often gives us an actual definition for these things. So if we want to know what love is, we can go to 1 Corinthians 13, and it tells us exactly what it is. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. It isn't irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. So when Jesus says we have to love our neighbour as we love ourselves, this is the definition of what love is. It's not abstract. It's defined. There is a content to it. And we can see and know what that content is from scripture itself. We don't need to make it up. Love ultimately acts. It seeks to bless, to benefit the other. And it doesn't curse or harm them. That's what love is. This is love defined. So when we think about love in our neighbours, this is the content that we put into that word love. The Bible will often use that Greek word agape for it. Agape meaning an unconditional love. It's not earned or gained or merited. And it doesn't disappear when somebody does something really stupid or daft. It's the kind of love that God shows to us. And he then calls us to show to others. And it's actually the kind of love that he asks from us as well. A love that's trustworthy and unconditional. And sometimes we all know that in our faith, it's only that kind of love for God that gets us through certain moments that happen. So we have a definition of love. But then, of course, we have this interesting thing. Love yourself. Love others as you love yourself, is what Jesus says. Now, self-love is generally considered a no-no in evangelical churches. We struggle with that. What do we do with that? We're, actually, we're quite comfortable saying we're, we're sinners and that we, we deserve God's wrath and the... Um, all that's in us is, is, is a steaming pile of black mess, I think is a phrase one of my old pastors used to say. Um, we're, we're comfortable with that kind of stuff. In fact, lots of theologians actually argue that Jesus here isn't endorsed in any kind of love for self, but he simply is working on the assumption of its presence. But it still has to be some form present. Now, let's clarify things here. Jesus isn't calling for um, some form of narcissistic love. Now, you all know the kind, that, that, that obsessed with self kind of love. You know, spend like 25 hours do, doing makeup and, and, and all that kind of stuff. Says me, you can tell I spend absolutely hours doing that kind of thing. Um, He's not talking about a kind of love that, in, that drives us internally. That puts barriers up towards others. That's, so we need to understand here. He's speaking about that kind of love that is actually defined in 1 Corinthians 13. Now, love is patient and kind. Are we patient with ourselves? Are we kind towards ourselves? What is our fault life towards ourselves? I would actually encourage us, read 1 Corinthians 13 and ask if you actually, generally, show yourself any of those attributes. Because you will realise as you, as you read them, none of them are narcissistic. None of them are going to force us to become so internalised that we don't look towards others. 
not what they will produce within us. So what is this kind of self-love then thing? Well, one of the things I want us to understand is we, we, we sometimes misunderstand this. I remember mentioning a couple of weeks ago that, that one of the, the key parts we are, we are in is we explore what the, this, the, the focus of making connections with God, with each other and with the community. One of the things I really wanted to do is we looked at how we connect to each other was to celebrate who we are. And I remember getting a couple of horrified looks as I said that what within me should be celebrated was kind of I think where our minds went to but what we've got to realise is yes there is the side of the coin in which in our natural state we are marred by sin in our natural state the Bible says we are enemies of God in our natural state, we are unholy. In our natural state, we are dangerous towards others. We can't get round those things, but yet the Bible doesn't just simply say those things. Okay? So one of the things I want us to understand is that self-love doesn't mean we are okay with sin. Hey, everything's jolly, rosy, and easy. It doesn't mean that. Okay? not what it means. It's not self-indulgent. But what I think it is, is a recognition that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. That's scripture as well. Psalm 139. Each of us sat here this morning is fearfully and wonderfully made. God was present from the moment of conception. It says you sewed me together in my mother's womb and I remember looking into that and when a child is conceived the two strands of DNA begin to knit together. So when you see scripture say you knit me together in my mother's womb that's literally what happens at the moment of conception. Coincidence? I'll let you decide. But for me that made me realise actually from that very first moment God is there. God is there. So it's an awareness that we are fearfully and wonderful made. It's also an awareness that we are bearers of the image of God. We are made in God's image. And while there's a lot that goes wrong in this world because of sin, God's image is still there and can produce remarkable things as well. Because we're, ba- we're made in the image of God, we are bearers of the image of God, we have value because of that, we have worth because of that. So we've got to know both sides of this. Self-love isn't some bizarre, indulgent, narcissistic thing. But I think what it can be is a godly perception of self which enables us to look outward. Because actually, if we are constantly in a woe is me place, I'm this, I'm that, and our minds are trapped on our failures and our sins, then we're as much internalised it's what we would be if we were a narcissist. Our eyes are still wholly planted in us and not registering what's going on around us as well. So we've got to take in what the other parts of what Scripture says, that we are fearfully and wonderfully made, that we are bearers of the image of God, and these things matter as well. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, God loves every single person on this earth. 
without exception. Even the ones we don't really like. And I can guarantee we've all got something in our minds as soon as I say that. God loves them too. They have value, they have worth because they too are fearfully and wonderfully made. They too are made in God's image. Even if we would maybe like to rearrange their image, they're still made in God's image. So that gets me then to the question, who is my neighbour? We are called to love our neighbour, so who is our neighbour? The first thing I want to stress is this is a call that applies to all and not simply to other Christians, okay? Now we're looking through First John in the evenings at the moment and as we look through that we're hearing this consistent call to love our brothers and sisters in Christ and if we're not doing that there is something very up with us spiritually. We can't hate our brothers and sisters and love God. The two, that doesn't, that doesn't work. It's like putting batteries in the wrong way in a remote control. It doesn't matter how hard you hit it, it's not going to work. Okay, it's incompatible with the faith as God has decreed it and made it to be. But this call to love our neighbours isn't stacked into that context. It's, it's throughout. It's a call to love. Not simply Christians, but everyone. We can't use the, what I'm saying here is we can't use the gospel to wiggle around this, okay? So for those that don't follow our faith, this call to love our neighbour doesn't exclude them. It perhaps increases the validity of loving them. Okay, now, now stick with me for a little second. Because Jesus has actually asked this question. Somebody thinks they're smart and they can one-up them. <laughs> Didn't work. Um, and we all got this very clear. Again, the Bible doesn't leave this ambiguous. It makes it clear as to what it means to love our neighbour. And I want to read, to just add that content to this, the parable of the Good Samaritan. This is from Luke chapter 10. And I'm reading from verse 25 where it says, And behold, a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. He answered right. And Jesus says, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. Now, of course, the man thinks, Let's let's test this one out. And so, of course, we get the next question. Uh, But he, desiring to justify himself, says to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was walking down that road, when he saw me passed by the other side. And likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and he bound up his wounds, pouring on, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and took him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and he gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you have to spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? The guy replied, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus says to him, you go and do likewise. So who is your neighbour? 
Your neighbor is, according to this definition here, a Samaritan. I'm not talking about picking up the phone and blessing those that work on the Samaritans, by the way. You could do that. They would probably appreciate the encouragement. But what is a Samaritan? Who was a Samaritan? Well, the Samaritans were part of what was seen as an unclean, mixed-breed group of people. They existed in their own cut-off area where no Jew would dare go. To be around them, to be seen with them, you would be considered unclean, you would be defiled. They were considered the worst of them all because of this mixed breed. They were a mix between Jewish people and non-Jewish that had all sorts of different perspectives and some strange views on things and you didn't go near them. This would make the Scottish-English rivalry look tiny, okay? That's what a Samaritan was. What Jesus says here was probably one of the most offensive things he possibly could because this group was seen with such utter disdain culturally, okay? And this is why the chap doesn't... Have you ever noticed he doesn't actually name the Samaritan? He says, the one that showed mercy. You can imagine him saying it through gritted teeth. He couldn't even bring himself to say the name. So the neighbour is the good Samaritan. So who is your neighbour? If you take seriously what Jesus is saying here, and of course there are cultural elements but the, the, this call to love our neighbour as we love ourselves is, is, is the context of this teaching. So it's not just cultural, it's personal. Okay? Who is our neighbour? Your neighbour is the last person that you would want it to be. Your neighbour is the last person that you would want it to be. Your neighbour is that person that you wouldn't want to be around. Or you might even feel scandal about those that are around them. Your neighbour would be that person that to think of being in their presence could potentially make your skin crawl. Your neighbour is a person that you detest. This isn't about sin or salvation or anything like that. This is about righteousness. This is about Christ-like conduct. Living as God intended humanity to live, it's about obedience and it's about conduct. But it's also about recognizing ultimately worth and value in others. Because love of neighbor, when it's biblical, returns the humanity, returns the worth to the people that we have stripped it from. To the people that we have stripped it from. And I mean that... and culturally as churches but as individuals as well it returns the worth to the people that we have stripped it from it returns the worth and values to the people that our hearts have declared is unclean and despicable who is your neighbour? this is where it gets controversial isn't it? I remember as I was praying for this and I was reading through it and as I was contemplating on it, one of the things that came to my mind and I thought, I can't say that. I could get sacked. I'm going to say it anyway. So 
switch my emails off for a couple of days. <laughs> I think for some evangelical Christians, your neighbour could be a homosexual. For some of us, it could be immigrants. For some of us, it might be family (laughs) that have driven us up the wall. Who is the unclean, the worthless, the despicable in our hearts? True biblical love of neighbour means they're the people we're to try and seek to show love to. That doesn't mean we're okay with everything that they're doing. I don't care with everything we're doing, to be honest. But what it does mean is that we recognise that God is calling for us to show that person love. It's like when you saw Jesus, this, this prostitute was dragged before him. Dragged before him. All these people convinced they were in the right. Ah, Jesus, look at this woman, this woman, this such and such and such and such. I'm not saying the expletives that were surely used, because I don't know Greek expletives, so didn't teach us that at college. It's shocking. So this woman is getting called all the different names under the sun. <laughs> she was caught red-handed, okay? And you kind of dispute that she had done something she really shouldn't have. But Jesus saw through all of that. He saw through the self-righteousness and the, the pomp and the arrogance of it. And he asked them that question. Like he who has never sinned cast the first stone. And could you imagine how that woman must have felt as she heard all the stones get dropped? What did Jesus say to her in that moment of abundant and remarkable mercy? For he literally put his neck on the line. He didn't say, off you go, that's fine, all is well and good. He said, go and sin no more. The love that he was showing her, the compassion and mercy that he was showing her, the divine love, mercy and compassion rooted and sourced from heaven itself that was shown to her was intended not just to make her feel good and bless her. Of course, those were important things, but it was intended to reach into her and touch her in such a way that it transformed her life, that she encountered the grace and the love and the mercy of God as Jesus showed this love and mercy to her. That same call applies to us. It doesn't mean we become apathetic to sin and we are indifferent and we're not bothered and we don't do anything or say anything. But it means that we recognize that that call to love our neighbor as ourselves is part of our ministry of doing something, of being there, of being present, of showing Jesus to these people. And praying as we do that with all our hearts that they see something of Jesus and how we're engaging with them. So reality is, folks, as much as we would love it to be the case, and we know this reality because we experience it with our children. I was saying to somebody, that's bad, didn't he do it? Doesn't he stop folk doing it? And the reality is, even if it did, even if we were to come across somebody and teach them not to do every single sin that we could think of, good luck with that, by the way, they're still not in relationship with God. The actual gospel hasn't touched their lives. The gospel is God. The gospel is God reaching down to them. And we are the physical evidence of it. 
it's not about abandoning everything. It's about actually embracing all of that and then recognising that we're to live as Jesus did. It's a radical teaching that calls us to move past ourselves, to see the worth and the value of all, especially those that we naturally don't want to see it in. Who is our neighbour? That question is important because it's a key part of us living out righteousness. It is the way of God. The way that we see Jesus conduct himself. The way we see him live his life. The way we see him minister. The way he keeps tipping culture and society up on its head because culture says they're unclean, they're unclean, they're disgusting, they're useless, they're worthless. Put all them to the side and ignore them. Or we'll just put some media headlines up every now and then to make sure they know their place. For as Jesus says, there's your neighbour. Go and love them. So we have to wrestle with our culture. We have to wrestle with our own prejudices. We have to wrestle with our own fears. We have to wrestle with our own sins. Because sometimes the sin that we hate the most is actually the one that we ourselves are wrestling with the most. We have to wrestle with all of this to try and come to a place that's like the place that Jesus lived, the place that Jesus walked. That we can learn to love the least as defined by us. It's defined by us and our hearts and where our hearts lie. And that's a challenge. It's a battle. Because we're bombarded with different things in our minds. We're bombarded by what the rights and wrongs from our culture, from ourselves, from those around us. And it's very easy for us to just develop prejudice, to develop hate. But to, to love our neighbour as Jesus calls us to hear is a, is a real challenge. It's radical. And at times, pretty scary. Because it will move us out of our comfort zones. It will make us go and speak to sometimes the last person that we would want to talk to. But if the love of God can shine through us and touch that person's life, it will change our lives as well. Because we'll see God's grace in you in an amazing and in powerful ways. But that's scary. It's hard. And our culture teaches us not to do that. Our culture teaches us stay away from those folks. Jesus calls us to actually go to them. And that can get complex. And it can get messy. And it can get difficult. But Jesus did it all. And we see him bat our heads frequently with people. Please let me stress, this is not about us abandoning our righteousness and our holiness in the ways of God. I really want to reinforce that. We have a clear scriptural way of how we have to live as God's people. We have to live holy in every part of our lives. We have to belong to churches that seek to be holy. But what I think we learn from this is part of being holy is loving our neighbours. This isn't something else, an addition or a clause. It's part of it. Part of that call to be like Jesus. It doesn't require us to abandon any of our principles. We stand firm on them, but we recognise that how we express them and how we conduct ourselves within them 
is to love our neighbour as we love ourselves. That could be challenging. Because every time I say it, there's one specific name that sticks in my mind, and I'm not going to say it because some people might love this guy. You might have already guessed who it might be. Um, but there's different people for all of us because we're different. But that person that you, that you would least want to be, there is your neighbour. So I'd encourage us to embrace that battle. Embrace it. And prayerfully I say to God who your neighbour is and ask for God's strength and wisdom and how you seek to show these people kindness, compassion and the love of God. We've all heard that phrase, some, we, uh, we might be the only Bible somebody ever reads. Now in lots of ways that's complete nonsense. Okay? Because our lives aren't always very consistent with Scripture. Okay? If we're the only Bible people ever read, then it's a Bible that's going to be filled with a fair few contradictions. Okay? But in some ways it's absolutely bang on. We are the people that can show God's love. Show something other. Okay? Because the love that God wants to see grow in us. Love others as I have loved you. That's what Jesus says. Okay? Love others as I have loved you. But he also tells us, and I'm sure it's also in the Gospel of John as well, I have loved you as the Father has loved me. Now connect those dots for a second, okay? Jesus loves us as the Father has loved him. So he's taking his perception of love from the throne of the King and Creator of all things, from heaven itself, and shows us that love, and then calls us to show that love to others. So the kind of love he's speaking about isn't something that we're going to encounter very often on earth. It flows from heaven itself. It's found in Jesus Christ. And we're called to demonstrate it to others. It's a transforming love. A radical love. A life-changing love. It's not encountered anywhere else. But when people encounter it and the Spirit moves, lives change. Who is our neighbour? Our neighbour is that person that we've spoke about. Our neighbour is somebody that God calls to show his love to through me and through you. Let's pray. Father, the call to love our neighbours as we love ourselves is a challenging one. It's a profound one. It's one that transcends culture. It transcends race. It transcends nationalism. It transcends anything of this world. And stirs our hearts to love those that when we're honest, the least want to. And we are honest this morning, Father, and recognize there are people we struggle with. There are ideologies and subcultures in our nation that are incompatible with the faith that we hold to, that we are determined to be faithful to. So this call, Lord, to love our neighbor as we love ourselves is one 
which can be complex. It can be scary. It could even at times mean that we may be humiliated. Yet we see these things evident in the life of Jesus, in the ministry of Jesus. So we pray, Father, that you would be a God that would give us wisdom, that would give us insight, that would give us the ability, the capacity to love our neighbours as we love ourselves. And we pray that as we seek to be faithful to you and to your word, that you would take that faithfulness, that you would work through it in mighty ways. And that as we try to live like Jesus, as we try to live as he's commanded us to, we would see you working in mighty and powerful ways and that would encourage our hearts as well. You call us, Father, to be the salt of the earth and to be the light of the world. Those are scary calls, but ultimately what it means is the call is to be holy, to be set apart for you, to be distinct, to be like your son. So help us as we seek to do that. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If I could invite our musicians back up, we're going to close our service this morning by singing, Make Me a Channel of Your Peace. <laughs>